Martin Keenan here and we're outside at Ekmid and I'm delighted to say my good friend Dr Elaine Cloutman-Green's with me and Elaine's a clinical scientist but she's the infection control doctor and the director of infection prevention control of Great Ormond Street. Deputy. Deputy, Deputy director. director. Okay. Okay, well, there's still something left to go then. I suppose you always leave yourself with a bit more to go. What we're going to have a chat today about is a blog that you did back in, I think it was January. January, January yes. yeah, about 50 Shades of Grey, which is an intriguing title, but it's really about how infection prevention isn't black and white. So what got you thinking about writing that blog in the first place? So for me, it was a really interesting time. So Omicron was happening... There were lots and lots of changes going on. Um, and in that way of the world, everybody had an opinion. Everyone had an opinion on the news. Everyone had an opinion on Twitter. Um, everyone had an opinion on social media. And I was kind of looking through it and trying to wear my member of the public hat. Because okay. my husband and I were having lots of conversations. And it just struck me that one of the reasons people get so confused about what to do is because everybody talks about things as if they're black and white yeah i am firmly in this camp you are firmly in that camp and that's not the world that we actually live in and i think as infection control professionals we are used to the nuance that comes with that that yeah. actually every situation is a bit different every population is a bit different um and so because we intrinsically know that we don't necessarily feel like we have to articulate that when we're posting on no because we we know it's all gray but actually the front we put out is it's do this all that it's yeah. black and white isn't it and so we have to convert our grayness to black and white yeah and so in 240 characters people are saying it's x or it's y and members of the public are out there going huh how can it be both x and y like what am i trying to do here and so it was my attempt to try to have that conversation with my colleagues and with the wider public about the fact that we have to be more visible about the fact that it isn't X or Y. It's actually A, B, C, D, E, F all the way through. And that that nuance is important to talk about because when a patient comes to me and I isolate them for MSA and I say I'm not going to take them off for X amount of time and then they go back to their local and they have de-alerted them in a completely different way yeah. that patient is like huh what what what's going on and it makes them feel like we don't know what we're doing whereas actually we absolutely do we're just not articulating why that works differently in different settings because we're doing a constant reappraisal and risk assessment yeah. aren't we and what is today a risk suddenly a high risk comes along okay we've got to do something different but communicating that is difficult enough to staff and but certainly a lot more difficult to patients and relatives which must be actually a challenge in your setting where you're working in a pediatric hospital because children don't behave in the same way that adults do as well so you've got to do a completely different type of risk assessment as well yeah and i think having those conversations about what happens at my trust where you might stay for up to two years if you're really unwell mm. um, is really different to what might happen at your local trust where you're just going in overnight to get some bloods taken and some um, imaging done and so yeah. the risks of those situations are really different but we're really poor at articulating that or even knowing and talking about that's the immense power of infection control professionals they deal with this huge amount of uncertainty process it all and come out with an appropriate action and response yeah. and 
we don't sing the praises of those guys enough who are sitting there and dealing with all of this information, all of these variables, and are able to pull it together in something that actually then leads to meaningful practice change, kind of day after day, call after call, with different things coming at them. It's an immense thing that we just don't talk about yeah. enough. It ha- well, it almost happens without thinking. As you, I remember many years ago reading from novice to expert, where you you go through these phases where one minute you're going looking at the book, and I can remember working at the beginning of infection prevention control. I, I learned to use the expression, "I'm not in my office just now. I'll get back to you in a minute." When in Haven't fact I was all? sitting in my office and I'm thumbing through, uh, you know, communicable disease control or something like that, trying to come up an answer to a point maybe 20 years later when you you you're able to do a fuller assessment of the risks and think, "Okay, this is what I think I need to do in this." situation but it wouldn't be necessarily what you would do because you actually may assess your risks in a different area i mean i come from a wound care background so i'll look at tissue viability aspects whereas a clinical scientist you'll be looking at things like ventilation or, or you know some, something a yeah. little bit more physical science related yeah absolutely and, and diagnostic tests and nuance of one molecular test versus another molecular test probably is slightly more meaningful and impactful to my risk assessment whereas i have enough knowledge about wounds and dressings to kind of have a pace but I won't weight that in quite the same way and that's why I also think having multidisciplinary infection control teams so we have those discussions and bring all of that information together to actually improve that joint risk assessment is really important but also to not even have that conversation with patients and families but to have that information with colleagues so I don't know about you and your clinical practice but we'll get a call when and they'll be like but so and so told me that yesterday and you've told me this today and I'm like well a we have new information yes today yeah and so the risk assessment itself has slightly changed and b both of those options are actually correct. They're minor changes that probably feel big to the person on the phone, yeah. but actually are just two different routes of achieving the same goal. And I think that's something that we miss sometimes with our infection control teaching of our colleagues out there that we're having these conversations about, yeah. um, that we don't embed that in infection control teaching. Like infection control teaching is very fact orientated. It's often, you know, this is about an audit bundle. This is about X, this is about Y. And so we teach facts but we don't teach concepts yeah. so much and I think sometimes if we can introduce some of that concept based teaching where people understand that we're getting to the same thing but there's a slightly different route to get there in the same way that you know if you've got a patient who's unwell there were different antibiotic choices yeah. that can be used and the history of the person that's prescribing the antibiotic and how successful X has been over Y in terms of patient outcome for that individual will change what they choose between two completely acceptable options um, than if you spoke to a different kind of med micro consultant the next day and we kind of have to talk almost in the same way yeah um, well should we forewarn people because you know sometimes you're smack in the middle of grey but you've got to make a decision which is black or white and and the next day things might have pushed it a little bit more towards the dark side and, and two days later, it may be going towards the light side. So should we prepare people and say, this is going to be my decision today, but if things change, we may have to go to that or we may have to do to that? Because often there's a feeling in staff, well, they don't know what they're doing. They, they're just changing their minds all the time. And sometimes it's the way you phrase things as well. Yeah. So every time I have a conversation, that means that I have made a call in the middle of something. Um, I must admit, I go, okay, so 
And this is the information that's coming down the line. So if I know that I have screening results waiting or kind of further antibiotic sensitivities coming out or, um, you know, I'm still waiting for some information on families, I kind of include that in the end of that conversation. So this is where we are right now. Obviously, it's an evolving situation. We're likely to get this further information. So let's touch base tomorrow and have another conversation about it rather than giving it as almost a final package decision that isn't going to change. That's a really good point. I like the use of the word, this is an evolving situation because people will recognize then there's going to be ebb and flow and as new information comes along. Because sometimes, and I've done that, we will say that's what we're going to do. And then next I have to go go and say, well, that person's got to come out of the side room because I've got a CPE coming in or something like that. Yeah. And then the staff go, oh, for God's sake, what's going on? And uh, yeah, that's that's a tricky one, really. And I think there's also, we've done some interesting stuff. I say we, actually, uh, the amazing team have um, mostly led on it, where for especially places like intensive care units where, you know, you might have limited side rooms because we actually still have quite big bays to facilitate the nursing management. We almost have a hierarchy of risk, So if you only have one cubicle available, this is who you put in it. And so it's almost making that risk assessment more obvious outside of the risk. People will expect there is this hierarchy. Outside of that high pressure situation where people may not necessarily be able to take in all the information because they're trying to deal with like what's in front of them on the ward. If they know that this stuff exists, then it's not a surprise to them when you then go, okay, so this is where we are right now. I know this is where we said in terms of safety, this is how we still make that patient safe that you're taking out of the room. But as you know, we have a process about um, where people need to go if we have limited resources. So. Yeah, because staff actually don't want to listen to us go through our entire risk assessment. No. They want to know, what have I got to do today? Yeah, and that it's safe. And so by yeah. kind of pre-warning them outside of a situation where they're stressed, that there is this thing that goes on. And if they want to know more about it, absolutely we can have a conversation and we've engaged them when having, creating that original structure. So they feel engaged, they know it's there. And then they don't need to know about it in the moment unless they want to say, actually, can you talk me through it because I've got to go and talk to that family or can you go and talk to that family? So they have access to the information, but they also don't feel excluded from the rationale if they don't have time yeah. to engage with it. I mean, would that make a good part of our routine education to people about how we go about our risk assessment process so they can understand where we're coming from when we come up and say, that's what we're going to do today? Would that be helpful, do you think, if you go through, you know, this, these are the aspects we have to take into account and we're not thinking necessarily about your ward or your cubicle or just that patient. We'd maybe have to take the whole organisation into account and the impact on them and what resources we have, which sometimes can be an issue because we've certainly had that. Uh, in, in the COVID issue, you know, what PPE have we got, what we're going to wear, what, you know, where we're going. Do you think that is helpful? I think a holistic approach is really key. So we recently launched uh, like a master's module in paediatric infection control. And I spend one of the morning sessions not only talking people through kind of risk assessment, but also how to make that risk assessment framework for yourself. So there are different ways of processing it if you're starting down this road and you haven't got to the point where you've hit that um, not that I think I'm a master of anything but kind of definition of mastery where you kind of um, intuit it there are different tools so actually do you want a flow chart 
algorithm do you want a tick list of questions like so that you can have a structured framework to support you making those choices so that you don't feel like you've forgotten anything or missed anything out and that you haven't put two pieces of information together so we not only talk about all of the different components of risk assessment which you know there's there's a lot it's like is it a pediatric setting where they suddenly have really high viral loads because it's a primary infection versus an adult setting where actually um that may not be so much of an issue but you've got all of the ventilation associated pneumonia going on which is less of an issue in pediatrics and so not only kind of making that process obvious but also supporting people to especially our link nurses that are coming on those courses to start that process themselves so that they feel empowered in those conversations yeah. um, because they will fundamentally always know more about their patient and their particular clinical scenario in that moment than I will. And That's actually a very good point though and, and actually by just telling people you're going to do that it's better as a discussion, isn't it? So you yeah. can say, this is what I'm recommending. How does that impact on that patient? Then you've actually got the staff member who's actually involved in the decision. So therefore, they're far more likely to implement it well, I think, yeah. than if they're just told what to do and they don't really understand the rationale behind it. And they haven't got the point of what they might want to make over to us as well, which we actually may not know and may need to take into account with our risk assessment. Yeah, I mean, a perfect one for us at the moment is, you know, you get families that are very non-COVID compliant. Um, in terms of mask wearing or other things in terms of their activity, especially at a time of high community prevalence, just like in all trusts, if you're choosing to move somebody out of a cubicle and they have a lot of visitors, then if those fam- that family happened to be less compliant, are you putting other people in that bay at risk? Yeah. And so that's not an infection control reason in itself not to do something, but it might weigh your balance if you've got options and it's having that door open so that if you have a member of staff who wants to have that conversation they can have it Mm. we all know some members of staff just want to be told and you know and you know i'm comfortable that's my job i'm happy to say this is the decision you should do this yeah but there will be situations and i think that's a really important shift in infection control in general that we need to make is empowering the people that we're working with, the people on the walls, the healthcare workers, to feel like they have ownership because infection control will never truly succeed if it comes from a central core diktat, right? Because people don't feel like it's their responsibility, whereas actually gradually making that shift so people feel empowered to have ownership of that process. Yeah. Um, I'm all about co-production and I think that's a really important thing as we move down these processes because our patients are only going to get more complicated. Yeah. Healthcare is only going to get more complicated and resources, sadly, are probably only going to get a bit tighter over the next few years. Yeah. And so the power of those conversations will increase. Yeah. So I'm thinking about how we can help people understand what we think about. And it's an idea that just floats around my head and I'm going to say it before it floats out again because that's generally what happens with me is that, you know, I, I like podcasts, obviously, and you like blogging, and is there any opportunity for a, an organisation, do you think, to create a load of little podcasts where each department talks about how they do, how they operate, what they think, and how everyone can work together? Because people actually will listen to this sort of thing in the car, won't they? You know, they don't want to sit there in a lecture, and they won't want to sit in there and look at a load of PowerPoint slides, but actually, things like podcasts, people, if they're bite-sized type things, people will listen to those. Do you think that's a goer at all? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I was so I was speaking to my PhD student 
only yesterday about a bit of a passion project that I have in my head and I have no resources or time to do it about how so we should do it, <laughs> about how we should do a piece of work where we map behavior and practice against specialisms in order to give us the information we need to improve the risk assessment within those specialisms so from instead of going actually so the contact precautions session yesterday was really interesting where we heard about different um, settings in the states where they've stepped down from using um, contact precautions and that struck me as both amazing but whilst I was talking and listening to it you're like but do you have the granularity of data to support which settings this works in yeah because they all have different risks yeah and we do have a habit, me included, of going, this works, you should all do this. <laughs> Whereas actually, I would really like us to move towards collecting some data that supports what is different in settings. So the number of patient interactions in pediatrics um, between a staff member and a patient is likely to be much higher than a lot of your general adult settings. You know, we will hold children, yeah. we will soothe them, yeah. you know. The number of physical interactions with visitors in terms of those patients is likely to be different. And the number of visitors they may get is likely to be different. So even if you just look at that, hmm. if we're looking at stuff about environmental interaction levels or interaction levels and risk of kind of direct cross transmission from a member of staff to a patient who had if the staff member has mild respiratory symptoms for instance that they're not well enough to be off sick and they probably haven't noticed it if we could do some mapping to look at what that level of interaction is like how does that compare to um, a geriatric ward where actually you're also physically helping people a lot to stand, yeah. to toilet and all of those things, to a hemonc ward where your interactions, you may also have an awful lot of interactions, but they're likely to be with lines and intensive care. How can we do some work that maps some of that interaction and then maps it back onto a risk assessment framework so that when we're talking about the fact that we should look at making this change because it impacts really well in that setting. You have a better structure to go, well, this setting is actually really like this setting in yeah. terms of its interactions, so we can probably see if it works here. Yeah, the, th the thing is, you don't always know what the setting is truly like because papers don't always describe the setting. So all the, you know, I made the point yesterday that you've got all these papers that say you can knock back on contact precautions. That's fine if you're in an organisation that's mostly single rooms or most dual rooms, whereas if you've got a bay of eight, yeah, you know, knocking back on contact precautions means an awful lot of education. So that somebody really still knows. Okay, I haven't. Or I'm, I suppose these days MRSAs are out in the bays. But if you had a CPE out in the bay, when really you would like them in a single room, but we've knocked back on contact precautions because that's all that's required. You know, you're going to have to really educate people. They have to make sure their hand hygiene is approaching something like the 90% it says on the door instead of the 21% that it is on the real planet. And that, you know, that's where. I find when I read a paper, they don't always describe the exact setting so that you can think, does this apply to me? Could this work in my area? Yeah. You know, that you get the endpoint and think, oh, they did that and it worked, great. But we don't get the granular detail of exactly what the scenario is that helps us make that decision. Yeah, and, and so helpful. I think those informal ways of sharing, like having podcasts that you talked about, are a brilliant thing because you can't get that stuff published, right? No, no. And I well, think infection control in general 
suffers from the fact that most of the stuff that really changes practice is stuff that we sit down and talk about, yeah. right? Yeah. And there isn't actually that good a medium for sharing that kind of information. You don't get invited to talk at ECMID about kind of that kind of thing in terms of going actually the benefit of risk assessment is or the benefit of supporting your staff to undertake risk assessment is it's much harder to get that and also i mean we're all living through a pandemic and infection control it's been rather busy and so publication time in terms of writing papers hasn't been there and i'm not sure it's going to come back in the short term so i peer review is amazing to ensure data is good to make sure that it reaches a certain scientific quality i'm in no way knocking the importance of getting stuff out via peer review but I do think that actually there are other routes that we should be looking at to support our peers in terms of practice. Yeah, very good. Now, one thing I did notice in your previous blog was that you were going to write another one on a bit more detailed on risk assessment. So, any idea when? Um, so, I gave a lecture on it last week. Okay. So, my hope is to change that <laughs> into a blog in probably the next month. Um, so, I have all the slides and stuff ready to go it's mostly about actually thinking about how you have how you write it down I think is almost the thing that takes it's quite easy to talk about but um, working out how to put it into words that have the same meaning and land the same way is the slightly trickier thing so hopefully within the next month well been lovely to chat great to see people again isn't it and uh amazing. Look forward to seeing the next vlog. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, always a pleasure. Catch everybody later on another edition of Infection Control Matters.